Greetings, listeners and learners. You are now tuned in to The Complexion of Teaching and Learning, a podcast docuseries in which we traverse across time to explore the socio-historical, political, and professional experiences of educators of color. I am your host and co-learner, Brandon White, English language arts specialist for Unbound Ed, where we seek to serve students across the country by keeping our work and learning grounded within the intersection of equity, instruction, content, and standards. In this episode, we'll explore the undertold contemporary experiences that educators of color must navigate as a result of this nation's past and present. Throughout the episode, we'll be attending to two of Unbounded's five charges by talking about race systematically and examining bias and its role in our work and learning. I hope the reflections in this episode and the discussion questions available at the end provide fuel for meaningful, necessary, and courageous conversations that you can have about how teaching and learning have evolved in this racialized country. If you're just tuning in, I encourage you to listen to the previous episodes which explore the experiences of educators of color before, during, and right after chattel slavery, continuing into the Jim Crow era, U.S. expansion, and the impacts of the Brown v. Board decision. Last episode, we explored the double-edged sword of the Brown v. Board decision. While the creative and skillful lawyers from the NAACP worked masterfully with black teachers to build a case for integrated resources and schools, many unions, communities, and legislators were pushing back, and the loopholes in the Brown decisions promoted tokenized segregation instead of integration, while demoting and eliminating a large amount of black schools and educators. Well, what does this Brown versus Board backlash have to do with where we are today? When we look at the dismal numbers of teachers of color, and how grievously disproportionate they are compared to the demographics of students in our public school system, and when we look at all the studies that show the drastic segregation of funding in students in our public school system, we can start to thread experiences. Who are the professionals that must suffer with the pricks and punctures that come along with the weaving of these histories into our present? We've been blessed to have Professor Sonia Douglas Horsford on as a guest over the last two episodes. In her book, Learning in a Burning House, she refers to the backlash of Brown versus Board that catalyzed the contemporary experiences of educators of color as disintegration. We will use this frame to explore the invisible taxes educators of color must pay today, which include forces and legacies that work to disintegrate bodies, disintegrate professional learning experiences, and disintegrate educational heritages. While the idea of disintegrating bodies, experiences, and heritages is a hard process to follow, it is even harder to live, and even more important to understand. In this two-part episode, we will have experts and practitioners help us seek this understanding. Let's discuss disintegration of bodies first. As shared in detail during episode 5, Brown versus Board loopholes and backlash prompted an ethnic professional cleansing which caused tens of thousands of community-centered, anti-racist educators to lose their positions, eventually creating a circumstance where it is now mostly white teachers who teach black and brown children. <laughs> Talk about an affirmative action plan. I will say in my entry into the profession as a Rochester City School District teacher, many of my colleagues were educators of color in my school building a not-so-common phenomenon in a district where 80% of the teachers are white, but 90% of the students are not. Right outside of the district and surrounding suburbs, the percentage of educators of color drop into low single-digit percentages. Nationwide, this is the trend. Literacy researcher, professor, and author of books like Teaching Reading to Black Adolescent Males and Reading for Their Life 
Rebuilding the Textual Lineages of African-American Adolescent Males, Dr. Alfred Tatum illustrates how low the numbers are for Black and Latinx educators of color. It's wide, Brandon. Um, when we look at uh, across our major states, uh, we're looking at 1% or 2% uh, African-American male teachers, for an example. Uh, it's like that in Illinois and, and South Carolina. And when you look at Latino educators, uh, particularly males, they're roughly about 1% of the teaching population as well. And so when I think about, you know, we have 4 million black male children in schools across the United States. That means we would probably need about 200,000 black male educators if we're trying to mirror that. And we're not even close to having uh, that happen. That's roughly about 4,000 students across the states. Now, those sound like very small numbers, but we're not even approaching that. In Illinois, for example, the data I looked at, uh, we were about 3,000 black male teachers short of where we could be. And that's the type of analysis that we have to take uh, across the different states. And anecdotally, uh, there are school districts who don't have any uh, African-American teachers, men or women, uh, in their district. And they're trying to figure out how do they address that. And states, uh, Illinois, for example, is also trying to create legislation called diversifying the teaching uh, workforce. Uh, but again, we have a long, long, long way to go in this nation. And that's from pre-K through 12. The number of educators of color was lowered post-Brown versus Board and has remained disproportionately low since. However, while the desegregation switcheroo was the initial catalyst for lowering the numbers of teachers of color, other policies and practices functioned in ways that have maintained it since. Dana Goldstein, New York Times journalist and author of the book Teacher Wars, A History of America's Most Embattled Profession, shares how the accountability movement, which started about 25 years after Brown, only sustained the legacy of minoritizing educators of color. They definitely have been, and it's for a really simple reason, which is that the schools that have been most targeted to raise test scores are those schools that are serving low-income black and brown children, and teachers of color are more likely to work in those schools because those are the communities that they're from. And just like a white, you know, suburban teachers often themselves went to white suburban schools. So certainly this whole fervor sends the nation at risk with President Reagan to raise test scores and, you know, kind of tough on American teachers and get tough on schools and kids, I do think it has uh, disproportionately impacted educators of color. We see that with school, the school closure movement, which has waned somewhat. But over the past 15 years, um, as schools were sometimes shut down or, or turned over to new management, President Obama pushed some policies that led to school turnovers like that. It was disproportionately, um, especially older black teachers who were caught up in those changes and often lost their jobs. And in several cities like New Orleans and Chicago, there's been a net loss of black educators over the past two decades or so. Um, I think that there's a consensus right now, I mean, no matter how people feel about divisive subjects like charter schools or Teach for America, I think almost everyone that I talk to as a journalist agrees that it's a huge problem and there's not more teachers of color. You know, we're in a situation where more than half the kids nationwide are now non-white. 
so there's no longer any talking about like minority students and minority teachers. That's not what the next generation looks like in this country. Professor Wayne Au, author of several academic papers on education and co-author of the book Reclaiming the Multicultural Roots of U.S. Curriculum, also explains the ways in which a push for accountability functioned as a push for educators of color to exit the system of public education. All that stuff happened to those communities with much more intensity, uh, disproportionate intensity relative to like uh, richer, wider, more affluent communities. And so then what happens is then teachers of color, I think in this, in this kind of space, they actually end up being, uh, getting more and more alienated from teaching, right? Like I came here to do this and work with these kids and I want to, I want to be creative and I want to find ways to engage them. But like the system of accountability is, is continually boxing me in, right? Um, to whereas I feel like I can't be the teacher I want to be. And that, I think, pushes, pushes those teachers out of the profession, frankly. Um, teaching is hard. And right now, I think it's totally underfunded. You know, the work is, is just tremendously intense and important and powerful. Um, but if you don't feel supported and you're in a space where you're not able to get that joy out of it um, to, where, to where doing the teaching and the hard work of the teaching is worth it, then you're going to leave. And I think a lot of teachers of color are, are disproportionately and disparately Im- impacted by the accountability measures in that kind of way. And then uh, there's, you know, depending on the state you're in, it could be other forms too. Um, there's, a lot of, there's a lot of states that are using, uh, using tests to try and evaluate teacher performance and teacher effectiveness. Um, and statistically, it's totally bogus to do that. But again, if you are teaching harder to te- te- teach populations, then uh, you're going to be doing, doing worse on those kinds of evaluations, right? So, so I really feel like the system ends up being, you know, I think it's bad for all teachers, the, this whole metric of accountability around high-stake standardized tests. But uh, I think it ends up being, like everything else in this country, it ends up impacting educators of color uh, more than it does white educators. Occasionally, I'll ask myself, Brandon, how much of this is intentional? And I inevitably have to answer myself, it doesn't really matter. Whether it was a group of old white men gathered around a table that conscientiously made these choices, or if it was completely incidental, I know it wasn't coincidental. Now, I'm not submitting that accountability is a bad thing. Truthfully, it all depends on the purity of the system and policies demanding that accountability. However, it was clear that these policies are the progeny of older, less sophisticated policies that needed upgrades in appearance and sophistication if they are to maintain the power dynamics that have existed for hundreds of years in this country. So yes, the numbers are tremendously low and tremendously uncoincidental, but what does this look like on a more localized level? I had the privilege and opportunity to speak with longtime educator and Nashville Public Schools board member Jeannie Pupo Walker. She also worked for Conexión Americas, where she led programs and advocacy efforts to improve outcomes for Latinx students in the state of Tennessee. She breaks down what the dynamics of low numbers of Latinx educators looks like in Nashville. Well, you know, I will say nationally, I think 8% of teachers nationally are Latinx. In Tennessee, it's much lower. Like in Nashville, it's 2%, right? 27% of our students are Latinx, but our teachers, it's 2%. Statewide, it's, right, so the disparity there is tremendous. So there's just not enough people in the classroom and certainly not enough people in leadership positions. And so we have, I think, I can count on one hand, Latinx principals in in Nashville public schools, 167 schools three or four principals total. Um, There is not one single Latinx uh, leader at the district level, at the high cabinet level. And then there's me. I'm on the school board in Nashville, and I'm the first Latinx school board member in the state of Tennessee. 
So what we have here is an, just an incredible um, lack of sort of leaders. And so the job then becomes of persuading and elevating and convincing uh, other people about this issue. And I want to be clear, there's a lot of people fighting for Latino kids every day. There's a lot of school leaders, whether they're union leaders or ed reform leaders who, you know, and I will say that it's been interesting to watch, um, for example, uh, the chart of growth in Nashville. Latino families are certainly um, enrolling their kids in charter schools and our highest performing charter schools. And they are t- paying attention and they're choosing and they're selecting and they are thriving often in these schools. And I think it's an interesting phenomenon, but I think you know that, that their presence in the schools is not um, spurring school leaders, education leaders, anybody to say, we need to hire more Latinx teachers, right? We need to have leadership in the building that looks like the families that are walking in the door. There's still that, that gap there. 2% of Nashville public school teachers are Latinx, but their student population is 20% Latinx. This is part of a legacy of cohesive oppression that inevitably ties back to the histories of how Latinx language and ethnic identities were marginalized in the pre-civil rights era, an era that caused the Latinx education activists to fight for the Bilingual Education Act to get passed. But how debilitated does the act become when the educator pipeline of potential native speakers and readers of Spanish is broken? Former U.S. Education Secretary and current president and CEO of the Education Trust, Dr. John B. King breaks down how this teacher shortage is a result of legislative legacies and beliefs. I think about how for years California and Massachusetts wouldn't allow bilingual education. And yeah. now people are surprised that there is a shortage of bilingual teachers. Right? If we've sent the message for all these years that Speaking a language other than English at home is a deficit, and then we, we've we've created this problem. We need to send a clear message that it's an asset, and that we celebrate being bilingual and biliterate. And so that's why I say, like, yeah, we need the intensive recruitment and retention efforts, but we also just have to interrogate the whole structure and whether the the policies we have in place at a structural level are sending a message about inclusion or a message about exclusion. When you also consider factors like how there are 20,000 educators who currently could be removed due to the slightest change of political climate because of their DACA or Deferred Action for Childhood Arrival status, we see how these legislative legacies and beliefs have their way of evolving into the 21st century. But we'll get more into DACA later. These types of numbers produce what I remember education author Jonathan Kozel calling a quote-unquote educational apartheid. I remember reading his book Shame of the Nation in my early education classes at Buffalo State College, being fascinated by the topic, but that fascination further transformed into resentment the more I would come to see it play out in real time. (laughs) Just a side note, I'm trying to imagine a world where a school district students are majority white, but their teacher and administrative workforce is majority of color. I can't. And I bet my stimulus check that you can't either. At any rate, 800 miles from Nashville is Philadelphia, where they must navigate the same system of educational apartheid as many other school districts that have predominantly students of color. 
Sharif El Meki, retired Philadelphia school principal, former U.S. Department of Education principal ambassador fellow, and founder and CEO of the Center for Black Educator Development, not only explains the racial terrain of Philadelphia public schools, but also the professional implications that the numbers produce. And so, but back to your point of these teachers of color, when I talk about Pennsylvania, when we say 96% of teachers are white, you know what? We've made progress, actually. Six and a half percent of the teachers now identify as teachers of color. So we're down to, you know, we're, we're, we dropped down. But it's not just the teachers who are leading the classroom at that moment, right? So when it was 96%, Right. It's not just the, that, oh, 96 percent of the teachers around the state are white. It's who's going to write the curriculum. Who's going to uh, create the policies, disciplinary policies, graduation policy, who's going to uh, purchase textbooks. All of these things means that if it's 96 percent uh, teachers are white, that means 96 percent of everything else, the entire ecosystem. But the students are increasingly black. And in some places like Philadelphia, you know, up to 80% of the students are students of color. And so if, if teachers of color are not creating and writing and informing and assessing the curriculum and, and the practices and the professional learning experiences, that means it is constantly tilted away from um, the children and the student outcomes that, that we should be pursuing. Elmeki brings up an important point. The numbers tell the story of the environment, and for the educators of color that represent that single-digit percentage of all educators, it can be tricky terrain that discourages best practices, joy, and retention in the profession, promoting a disintegration of professional experiences. Becoming and remaining an educator can be hard for any person of any complexion, creed, or competency. When an educator of color manages to make it into the profession, what are some of the challenges they must face in the profession that they in particular must navigate? Dr. John B. King shares what he and the Education Trust have found in some of their research about what black male educators are often burdened with when they enter the profession. Yeah, I mean, we, one of the things we heard very consistently, particularly from African-American male teachers, was that they were being sort of pigeonholed into the disciplinarian role. Um, and we also heard from teachers that they were not being given the opportunity to teach the advanced classes, the AP classes and so forth. Um, and so there was a, a way in which the, their role was being diminished from the outset. And it's one of the reasons why I think we see higher attrition rates for teachers of color than for white teachers in many communities. Unfortunately, in this dynamic, the profession often becomes a competition between policing and pedagogy. There are roots to this. I had an opportunity to also speak with Professor Chris Emden, professor, co-founder of Hip Hop Ed, and best-selling author of For White Folks Who Teach in the Hood, and the rest of y'all too. One of the best titles of all time. And he explains the contexts and overtones that exist that produce these dynamics. I think that what happens with educators of color oftentimes is that they inherit uh, the school leader or district's perceptions of young folks of color. Yeah. And so they get, they, get seen, they get seen as just older versions of the young folks that there's a bias against. Mm. So, you know, the, the, the biggest thing I've seen, particularly for young men of color who go into teaching and learning, 
is that they are moved out of the classroom and in place in leadership positions. Yes. And oftentimes, not leadership positions that revolve around pedagogy, but that revolve around their being, their policing of the expressions of blackness of young students. So in many ways, they be, you know, like get you out of the classroom. Now you're the dean of students. And your job is to be able to, you know, have all the problematic kids and fix them. And so in many ways, what happens is they get they they become they become the house Negro in the plantation of schooling. Um, they get taken out of the field, they get given this position of power and authority, and then they become charged with ensuring that everybody else is kept in line. So that I see overwhelmingly. Um, another piece of it that I that I see if if they're not taken out of the classroom is that they're given all the students that are giving that everybody else quote unquote can't handle. And while it's not an issue with the, the fact that they can't, it's not like they can't take on the responsibility. It's that they absolve themselves of the responsibility to love on students. And then they expect you to pour the love into 35 students who need more than anybody else does. And so now you have to overcompensate and it, it, it sucks the life out of you. And so in many ways, they think they're doing the students a, or yourself a, 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 a good deed. But in many ways, they're robbing you of the kind of love you need to keep going. So those, those things are there. I think for, for sisters of color in classrooms, there's just sort of like, a, there's a lot of research on other mothering, um, and it plays the same exact role. So you become like the, the extra mother, but you're also given the job of having more students um, to, that, that need more love, um, with you not having any extra resources. Um, and, and, and largely, I think, the biggest issue is the extraction of teachers, teachers of color, from doing the work of teaching, mm -hmm. and instead doing the work of leading, policing, loving, counseling. And we do it all in the classroom anyway, but then you rob us of the opportunity of actually teaching young people. El Mecki continues to explain this dynamic. It's like, why is it always this, this opportunity, whether you're a teacher or an overseer on a plantation, that you want to erase what they bring with them, <laughs> you know, what they have as part of their, um, their culture, their selves, right? Like it's always this, this push, this, this fervent desire to stamp that out. And so we shouldn't see the similarities in when an overseer plantation or in a child sweatshop that we also see in schools and system, educational systems, but unfortunately we do. And so when we talk about teachers of color, um, it, it has to be very oppressive for anybody, but we're talking about teachers of color to see them in a role when they see someone that looks like this, someone that could be their child oppressed by a policy that they disagree with, right? Being told like, you have to enforce this, right? You know, when you think of sometimes when the, the driver the, uh, of, on a plantation, sometimes would be, well, the overseer was, was white, the driver would be black, right? And so what, what is that where they like, for my own survival, I'm gonna have to do this to you. And, you know, it's, it's oppressive when educators are put in that same position, right, where they have to look at children that look like them, where they know in their soul that is them, and say, you know what, in order for me to survive, in order for me to be able to take a paycheck home, I'm going to have to do X, Y, Z to you. That in itself is oppression, you know, uh, multiplied several times over. I talked a bit about this in episode one. But very few things bother me more than when I reflect on moments in my practice where I was the system instead of shielding my students from the worst it had to offer. 
I would also go on to see that I wasn't the only black teacher in my collegial circle that had to wrestle with this. In talking about this issue with Professor Tiffany King, she could certainly relate. Author of the book, The Black Shoals, Offshore Formations of Black and Native Studies, Tiffany King describes the tension between abolitionist missions, oppressive environments, and internalized racism. So in my classes, I get, particularly my women's gender and sexuality studies classes, I get to have a lot of black women in particular. And um, like, you know, I'm, I'm dealing with this split self sometimes that I, ha that I end up noticing. And some days, like, I just really want to sit in the glory of all just the black womanhood and black feminists that shows up and just, just be there to affirm them and, like, talk about the life challenges that they're going to face, that we face, how to navigate the school system. But then I also get into my weird mode um, because of how, like, the, the university system has also trained me to be a person that to some extent has to discipline my students and make them competent. I'm also assessing them, right? I'm also um, showing them how to comport themselves for success, right? So I'm thinking like I'm showing them how to navigate something and get over on a system. But what I'm really doing is helping them, is I'm training them, right, to actually be better productive citizens that acquiesce to this kind of settler colonial rhythm. So one of the ways that that comes up is that, like, I really had to check myself this semester because there's a student who um, has just not been showing up, right? And so this year I have a class that only meets one day a week for two hours. And so I did the initial thing of, like, send in the early warning, like, their grade is in jeopardy. Um, so initially it was like, ooh, like, I'm worried about you. And then by the fifth absence, like, I was feeling disrespected and you can't, you know, you can't engage this class remotely. Like, you have to show up for me and for the rest of the school. And then, it, like, the last thing I thought was, like, and it was messed up. The last thing I was thinking was like, well, what is she going through? Like, I had to work through all these um, kind of protocols of one. One, the, the automatic school system that pops up and says, this, there's, I have an alert warning that I have to hand in, which students are not doing what they're supposed to do, right? So I'm conditioned by that. So then she becomes a problem, right? So then I internalize that warning system, I'm like, oh, yeah, she's not showing up, so she's disrespecting me, right? And so that becomes my train of thought. And so, like, the last thing I then think of is, like, what's going on in your life and how can I help you, right? So I had to, like, step out of that process and also check in with folks, so check in with some of my colleagues, one of which I named, Jillian Ford, like, what is my issue? Why am I feeling angry and slighted? by a student who's clearly struggling with something, right? And then when she told me she was struggling, I kind of didn't believe her. So I had to calm down, and luckily we were able to have a face-to-face -face meeting, like in between her caring for her niece, right, because her niece's mother is sick, and then the sister had, to, to, um, had her own hospital visit that she was telling me about. 
And it's like, why did it take all those weeks for me to be able to connect with her? And um, one, that's work that I have to do, but I also had to realize that the school conditioned me to do that, right? So um, the schooling itself is committed to this kind of alienation and disconnection. So I had to, I had to realize that, right? According to Dr. King, Latinx educators often have to navigate similar terrain, with linguistic marginalization being a noted difference. That's right. I'm, I've written about it as um, um, invisible tax that teachers of color pay. And, you know, it, it, it is a set of insights that folks have, but it's also a set of added responsibilities that folks end up carrying. And again, true for African-American teachers and Latino teachers, one of the things we found when we surveyed Latino teachers is they were frequently asked to be the translator uh, for families. And one of the things we heard from folks was, you know, I don't mind. I, I, you know, I'm, I'm happy to try to help families to navigate, particularly when we don't have other translators at school. But it also isn't recognized. It isn't compensated. So while you're translating, your colleagues are grading. While you're translating, your colleagues are planning. While you're translating, your colleagues are um, getting other leadership opportunities in the school. And so it's this um, tax then that you end up paying. And... Um, you know, this is this is one of the reasons why we have to think of diversity not as the work of the people of color on a team, but it's institutional work. There has to be an institutional commitment to diversity. Invisible tax indeed. We're going to end here. Next episode, we're going to resume exploring these invisible taxes and how they promote a disintegration of professional learning experiences and a disintegration of heritages. Looking at how these forms of disintegration operate, it only confirms a personal truth that in order to become a change agent for educational equity, we have to know three things. One, we have to know that we are part of an educational system that upholds policies and practices that are historically and inherently racist. Two, we have to know that being in this system means that we are participants in it and are therefore accountable for our contributions. And most importantly, three, Using our systemic awareness coupled with a strong knowledge of self, students, content, context, and instruction will not only allow us to be non-complicit participants in this system, but change agents from within it. As we go through this history, we will see that this is not easy work, but we will also see how this work is not only possible, but necessary. In between now and part two of this episode, we invite you to open your communities up to discuss this history and its connections to our perceptions of education in America. How does this history make you rethink your current practice? How does this history make you rethink how you interact with both white students and students of color? How do teacher preparation programs tackle systemic racism within their own institutions to promote educators of color without miseducating them? What can you do to hear and amplify voices of color in your local school setting? In this COVID virtual learning era, 
What does teacher anti-racist activism, resistance, and resilience look like? Reflection and discussion about our past and present can produce the most fruitful future. I would like to thank the executive producers for this episode, Alicia Stewart and Lydia Ramos-Mendoza. I would also like to thank professors Sonia Douglas-Horsford, Wayne Au, Alfred Tatum, Chris Emden, Tiffany King, Dr. John B. King, Baba Sharif el and journalist Dana Goldstein for sharing their time, wisdom, and embracing their cultural inheritance of having the duty to share knowledge holistically, intergenerationally, and communally. Until next episode, I wish you all fair learning journeys. Peace and progress. We hope you enjoyed this podcast, which was brought to you by Unbound Ed, where we seek to serve educators and students across the country by keeping our work and learning grounded within the intersection of equity, instruction, content, and standards. For more about our work, please visit unboundedorg for resources such as our free, high-quality curriculum and the Anti-Bias Toolkit, a three-part guide for facilitating conversations about race, bias, and privilege among teachers and leaders. We also encourage you to go deeper into equitable instructional practices by attending one of our new interactive virtual summits. You can also visit unboundedorg forward slash virtual summit to learn more about how you can bring the experience straight to your school, district, organization, or entire state. If you want to expand your content knowledge on the topics we've just explored, we strongly recommend diving into these texts. Latino Education in the United States, a narrated history from 1513 to 2000 by Victoria Maria McDonald. Learning in the Burning House, Educational Inequality, Ideology, and Disintegration by Sonia Douglas Horsford. If you listen, we will stay. Why Teachers of Color Leave and How to Disrupt Teacher Turnover by the Education Trust. Our Stories, Our Struggles, Our Strengths, Perspectives and Reflections from Latino Teachers by the Education Trust. We want to do more than survive. Abolitionist Teaching and the Pursuit of Educational Freedom by Bettina Love. For White Folks Who Teach in the Hood and the Rest of Y'all Too by Chris Emden. Other People's Children, Cultural Conflict in the Classroom by Lisa Delpit. Teacher Wars, A History of America's Most Embattled Profession by Dana Goldstein. And A Broken Pipeline, Teacher Preparations Diversity Problem by TNTP. We'll see you next time on the next episode of The Complexion of Teaching and Learning.